I'm your host, Erica, and with me is my hubby, my bestie, my money bestie. <laughs> Hello, Introduce everybody. Yourself. I'm Greg. I'm Greg. Gregory, what's going on today? I'm exhausted. How are you? I am good. A um, couple days until Halloween. Yeah. I'm ready for some candy. I'm ready to dress up. I might pick up my spirits. Work yeah. has been a killer, so I'm it's excited for that. Spirits up is putting on that outfit. <laughs> Do you want to tell everybody what we're gonna wear? No, I think I'm gonna leave that up to you. Um, mostly because it'll be a surprise. I mean, I know that you look great in your outfit. I know I don't look as great as mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It's got, I'm gonna post pictures on Halloween. So yeah, that ought to be fun. We are dressing as a unit. Yeah, for the first time, actually. I know, I can't wait. Yeah. Being together all this time, we're just now, like, doing... Because you always go as Greg. Yeah. For Halloween. It's the greatest thing. It's either Greg or as dad, and it works. Right. So it's <laughs> nice to, like, get you to dress up. So yeah. I'm excited. The kids are excited. And I hope everyone has a great Halloween. Yeah. Hey, stay out there. Uh, safe out there, people. Yeah, be safe. Yeah. Check the candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to tell everybody what we're going to talk about today? Alright, so sticking with the uh, spooky season mood, um, we're going with interesting or infamous serial killers. That's going to be a good one. I think it's important that our listeners know that we are not glorifying serial yeah, killers. Yeah, 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 that's it's... important. That is important. Yeah, but I like the infamous serial killers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, I know we did a bunch of research over the last few weeks for this one, so this ought to be fun. We got a couple each, right? Yeah, we have a couple each. We've really kept track of serial killers for some years now and watched a lot of docu-series and YouTube videos and researched ourselves, so it's yeah. nice to kind of be able to talk about it with everybody. Right, right. I think I'll go first. Yeah. And I'm going to start my first one. And I think with mine and yours, that they're going to differ. I think I have, like, kind of well-known, you know, American. Yeah, you're a little more domestic with your choices. Right. uh, I went international with mine. You did go international. There's one of yours that I do know. So that's, I'm like, oh, I've researched out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. You know? Because Uh, he is a very very interesting story. Yeah. Uh, My first one is Ed Kemper. All right, big boy. I love this one. Yeah, so some people have heard of him, some people haven't. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's also known as the co-ed killer or the co-ed butcher. Um, people who know knew him would call him Big Ed Kemper because he's like 6'9", over 250 pounds. Or at least at that time, in, you know, during his killings, he was a big boy in weight. But height, he's huge, 6'9". Um, he killed 10 people from 1964 to 1973. Um, six of them were co-eds or um, college women that were hitchhiking um, at his mom's university that she worked at. Mm-hmm. Um, he did pick up co-ed hitchhikers at that university. It was a university in Berkeley, California that his mom worked at. Um, and I want to kind of talk before we get into the killings about his upbringing. Yeah. Because yeah. I do believe that, you know, 
upbringing can cause things to happen you have trauma in your life oh for sure it's definitely something that starts at home yeah absolutely environmental things definitely you know play a big part in i think a lot of these serial killers yeah for sure um he was kemper was a middle child of three kids so he had an older sister and a younger sister um, when he was younger his parents were together um, but it was really fractured relationship both of his parents were really mean and verbally physically abusive mm-hmm. especially his mom she would probably tear him down any chance she got right um, his parents did end up separating um, so he stayed in the home with his mom and his two sisters uh-huh. um, around 10 years old is when things kind of start to happen with him and I think the red flags come into play and maybe at that time that could have helped save lives but he had made an offhand comment um when he was like 10 he's like well if i ever had to kiss my teacher i would have to kill him and it's like why would a 10 year old say that super weird yeah random (laughs) it's like uh do we need to ask for that information right um also this is a time where he started messing with and killing animals Ooh. So you know they say like that's the first sign. Yeah, it's usually the first sign of there's some real big issues ahead. Right. With Catch the... this shit at the <laughs> at the start, you know. Crushing turtles and yeah. snapping dogs' necks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they also say psychiatrists say that um, if you are someone who starts to mess with animals and you have kind of like a woman issues or mommy issues, it's probably you messing with like a cat. Because the cat is like a female symbol. Yeah, it's still it's way more feminine. That makes right. Sense. And, you know, he was living that time with just his mom. And I'm pretty sure he got the brunt of her, you know, aggressively, uh, verbally abusive, you know, just what she was doing. I'm pretty yeah. sure he got the brunt of that, being the only boy. Right, right. Um, even when he was young, his mom actually started putting him in the basement. So she started putting him in the basement at night, and that's where he slept. If you can think of a dingy old basement with that one little string that clicks on the light, probably. Yeah. Where you keep your washer and dryer. He was put in the basement at night, and it was locked because she had said she thought he could sexually assault his sisters. Oh, wow. And it's like, if you think that, then you should probably get your son some help. Yeah, absolutely. Locking him away is only going to worsen what can happen later on in life. Yeah, it's way more terrifying to think that, like, you're aware of it and doing nothing, so you just lock him up at night. Yeah, like he's an animal or something. Yeah, it's like having inmates come clock into prison at night. Right. You know what I mean? Hey, go live your life during the day, but at night you get back here. Yeah, that's going to cause <laughs> so much psychological damage later It's on. craziness. Um... Around 14, 15, yeah. um, his family lived in Burbank, California. He decided, okay, I can't take any more of this. I'm going to go try to find my dad. So he tries to go and look for his dad. Um, he does find his dad, um, but his dad rejects him at the door. So now we have to deal with not only mommy issues and being verbally abusive, maybe physically abusive to this you know, child. Yeah. He's getting rejected. By Estranged his, from both of your parents. Right. He's getting rejected by his father, the only male figure he knows. So, at this point, he goes to live with his grandparents. Yeah. And he quickly notices that his grandmother is just like his mother. She's 
verbally abusive, probably tearing him down, bitching at him every chance she gets, and he's had had enough. Mm-hmm. So he decides he's going to take his grandfather's twenty-two, and he kills his grandmother. Not grandmama. Right. <laughs> That's the first killing he did in 1964 was killing his grandmother. Damn. Yeah. But he did not want his grandfather to suffer the loss of his grandmother. Okay. So he actually cared about his grandfather's feelings in that. So he decides, well, when my grandfather gets home, I'll kill him too. Oh, wow. That's a level of self-awareness, but that's still pretty fucked up. Yeah, like, he's like, well, this is probably like my only male figure, but I'm feeling like uh, I don't want him to have to suffer, so I'm going to have to kill him too. That's... Oh, that's so awful. So he kills, that's his first two murders is when he's 15. And he gets institutionalized. He doesn't go to jail, but he goes to a mental institution. Uh-huh. He is diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenic. Okay. Um, and he starts being actually really charismatic, very trustworthy in the institution. Um, he even gets access to patient files and just what the doctors have been writing about him in his session. So he quickly learns how to play the game and what to say. So he's becoming a master manipulator at this point. Oh, absolutely. And he is known, Ed Kemper is known to have a high IQ, be very smart, very Interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very relatable, very easy to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, he's even in there, though, you know, being a 15-year-old, 16, 17-year-old, um, being in a mental institution that he was in in the 60s, there was a lot of, like, rapists and perverted people in there. Yeah. So he even said, he went on record to say later on that, you know, being around those people, it kind of hide his sexual senses, and he would masturbate, bait, masturbate multiple times a day. Mm. Um, so I don't, and you know, you being that young, you don't really know about it and yeah. you're just probably looking through people's windows and kind of seeing what you're impressionable. Yeah. So God knows that that just probably made it worse as well. Yeah. But with him being very smart, he was able to get out of that institution in five years. So by the age of 20, he was out on the streets mm. and he started living back with his mother. Oh, that's yeah. a bad sign still. And, you know, he has that estranged relationship with his mother. So yeah. I think at this time he knows, and I think the hospital did not help that. I need, he has this urge, and it was women. I need to kill. You know, I need to, it was something about women. He just wanted to kill. So he did do some practices with picking up hitchhikers at that university that his mother worked at. Uh-huh. And he would kind of fantasize while he's driving them to wherever they need to go, like, what he would do with the gun that's underneath his seat and what he would do with the bodies later on. So he fantasized for a couple of months of, and, you know, kind of practiced picking up hitchhikers. And then on May 7th, 1972, he picks up, picks up his first two victims and he makes one of them get in the trunk. He ties another one up with this rope, holding them at gunpoint, takes them to a, wooded area where no one was at and he takes the one that's actually in the car not in the trunk and leads them to the floor shoots them and does the same thing to the one in the trunk that's tragic yeah so really is sad man and he doesn't stop there you know what he tends to do with the bodies and this is not just with the first two but with the other ones he will dismember their heads he will have 
and this is TMI for people, but he will have oral sex with their heads. He'll have sex with their bodies. So he was a necrophiliac. Yeah. Um, and then he would usually dispose of the bodies in the forest, or they would be in the ocean, and they'll later on get washed up, and the police would find them. So, and he did this for um, a couple years. He was doing this. Um, he even went as far as going to a local bar where police were at. And he would just kind of be a police groupie, as they would say it. That's and he disgusting. Was, yeah, he would be a police groupie, and he wanted to, like, okay, let me find out information about what they know. Yeah. And, yeah, the police would say he was kind of like their groupie. He would come in all the time. He wanted to know, you know, what the latest, you know, development was on the case of this co-ed killer. Um, he even, when he started picking up victims and the name got big and people started going missing he even said he would have conversations with these victims and they would talk about the co-ed killer mm-hmm. and he kind of knew they weren't on his they were not on his uh, like trail because every time like one of the victims would describe him or even the police it would never fit his description mm. so he kind of knew he could kind he was getting away with it and um, he even said there was three separate times he could have been caught or should have been caught, and he was not. So we can see how the police were. That manipulation shit is, runs deep with that, and, and imagining he's talking to these people and these cops, and just in, the, in his head he's like, "Yeah, yeah, got, you. I got you guys." Yeah, That's it's disgusting. Yeah, he was like, "Yeah," and again. Because he frequented the bar probably every other night. Yeah. He yeah he started probably getting a big hit like yeah they're not gonna catch me. Right. Um, but there was a point where the police did stop by his house to pick up one of his guns because they were kind of confiscating guns in the area. Uh-huh. And he even said if they would have just checked my closet, I would have been caught because there was still hair from the last victim, wallets, backpack. He kept trophies. So if they would have just kind of went as far as just checking his closet, he would have been caught. That's crazy. The 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 fact that police always miss by like right. that much all the time, just not doing their jobs, huh? It's like when you see movies, you're like, it's just just go a little further, like right. Just go around the corner. You want to believe they're the cops aren't that dumb, and then you're like, nope. No, they aren't. Because, so you get those lazy ones who just don't want to Yeah, do absolutely. Oh, it looks good. Check out. Those lazy boys are the problem. Yeah, for sure. I might just have to well, let me look around for about 10 minutes. It makes you think anybody can join the academy. Shit, I could do this. <laughs> um, he would later say he was killing his mother over and over again. Mm. So he he's, he's always been super self-aware. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That's one thing about this serial killer versus a lot of other ones. Yeah. He kind of looked in the mirror and was like, ah, you know what? This I'm only killing women. I'm mm-hmm. killing women at my mom's job. Yeah. I am killing my mother. Mm-hmm. When I hear these women talking, I'm hearing my mother's voice. Yeah. And it irritates the fuck out of me. Interesting. So, That's so interesting. Yeah. He was very self-aware, like you said. And yeah. he decided, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. The killings do have to stop. So he decides, I am going to kill my mother. If I kill her, then the killings can't stop. My urges will stop. Jesus. So 
he decides on April 20th, 1973, that he's going to kill his mother. She had just came home from like a party. I think it was like 4 a.m. She's not crazy older, but she was in her 50s. Um, she kind of woke him up when she came in. Mm-hmm. And she was in her room just reading. And he was standing on the, at the at the door, kind of like Michael Myers. Mm. And she looks up and she's like, I guess you're going to want me to sit up and talk to you all night. And he was like, no, good night. And maybe she would have said a kind word. She may have not did what he is going to do. Yeah, I think he just needs that reassurance of her, like, saying something smart for the last time, maybe. Yeah, no, this bitch is evil. I'm going to kill her. (laughs) Right. So he waits for her to go to sleep. And he takes a claw hammer and he beats her to death. Yeah. And he doesn't stop there. Oh, no. He cuts her head off. And he oh, has no. sex with it. Oh, he, has, no. he has sex with it. Um, after he's done doing that, he puts her head on a mantle. He's screaming at her, probably saying everything he's ever wanted to say to his mom. He screams at that head for like an hour, then starts throwing darts at it. He even goes as far as cutting her vocal cords out. Wow. I think at this point she That's probably had deranged. Like, I think he had like a psychiatric break at that point like he was just like she he probably thought he heard her talking and yeah. cut her vocal cords out he definitely had a psychotic break for sure yeah and he tried to dispose of it in the garbage disposal but it didn't work so he just put it back in um after that he was like oh crap my mom's friend comes to visit a lot i don't want her wow. to find her so he actually goes as far as inviting his mother's friend this is his last victim Invited his mom's friend over, and he he kills her. Damn. So that would be his last victim was his. That's mother. unfortunate, man. Yeah, his mother and his mother's friend. Um, he says he never, he did not sleep. He actually became physically sick after he killed his mother. Mm-hmm. He drives for three days without any sleep, and he decides, okay, I'm going to turn myself in. So, oh man, okay. Yeah. Again, more self awareness there. Yeah, he's like, okay, I got Fully dis- displayed. He calls, he stops at a payphone, he calls the police. He knows these head detectives. He knows uh-huh. them. It's a kind of a small community. And again, he's a, a, a cop groupie, so he knows exactly who to tell. That's um, nice, man. a lead detective named John, John Connor, or something like that. It's uh-huh. like Jim, Jim Connor, or something like that. And he tells him that he's a co ed killer. And where to find his mom's body. So they go to his house. They Nothing looks touched. It's all untouched until they flip over his mom's mansion and it's soaked in blood. Uh. And there's a note saying, sorry Jim for the mess. I didn't have time. Courteous, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I guess because he, he's new job, Jim, right? Yeah. He's like, you know, he's kind of building a little rapport or relationship with Jim. But, uh, right. They find the bodies in two separate closets. He's, you know, he's arrested. And on November 8th of 73, he was convicted of all counts. So Mm -hmm. it's eight counts of first degree murder. So he gets life in prison. He does ask for the death penalty. Mm. At this time, there is not a death penalty in place in California in the 70s. Um, They do later on, not even in 10 years, put that replace you know the death penalty but he did ask for a death penalty and he wanted death by torture 
Yo, that is fucking hardcore. Right, this is in a different country, so of course we don't do that. But he did ask for death by torture. Wow. Yeah. Um, he was very forthcoming with interviews. He did over a hundred interviews, um, and a lot of police, a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists. They have called him a gentle giant. No one's ever even felt threatened. It's such a weird duality. Yeah. Yeah. There's only one person who said they kind of felt threatened. It was a woman who was interviewing him, and she asked something about his mother, and mm-hmm. he kind of stood up like this big bear and got angry. And I think it was, one, he was thought she asked about his mother, and two, she was a woman. So that mm-hmm. could have just run back things, but yeah. most part, people call him a gentle giant. Um, he is still alive. He is in a medical facility in Vacaville, California. Not Victorville, but it's Vacaville, California, for those mm-hmm. who live in California. Um, he has been eligible for parole over the last, you know, decades. Um, the parole board has said or declined it, right? Um, uh-huh. 2012 and 2017, he just waived his, you know, um, I guess the parole hearing. He just waived. He didn't want to do it. Interesting. Um, he is up for parole again in 2024, so in another two years. But I'm pretty sure he's gonna do like he's done the last, you know, couple, you know, couple decades. He's probably gonna say no. Just wave it again. Yeah, huh? wave it again. He knows he's probably not gonna get out. Mm. Um, he has told people again because he's so forthcoming with interviews that he does the interviews because he knows there's people out there like him. Yeah. And he doesn't want anyone to do what he did. That's almost respectable, which is interesting yeah. to say. It's kind of weird, you know. Yeah. You messed up so many lives, and people should have families by now. But, but super self-aware enough to understand the type of damage he did. Yeah, he was like, if you can just sit down and talk to somebody, you know, that's why he does the interviews. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to know more about Big Ed Kemper, um, there is a documentary. Well, there's a TV show on Netflix called My Hunters, and they kind of. They kind of follow Ed Kemper a little bit on there. That's a great show that me and you have watched. Um, yeah. They had two seasons. That show's top tier. Yeah. Um, they have one on Amazon. It's called Kemper on Kemper, Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer. So that's a little documentary you guys can watch. And then there's another one on Discovery Plus called The Co-Ed Killer, Mind of a Monster. So if you ever want to dive a little bit deeper into Ed Kemper's story, you can go on Amazon, Netflix, Disney, uh, Discovery Plus, and look at some documentaries on him. Yeah, not bad. Good, good choice. Thank you, thank you. Solid effort with that one. Who do you have? All right, um, we're gonna head over to Japan for this one here. Um, this one, this man's name is uh, Shatoshi Uematsu. Um, now, there's a bit of context for the country. And it's society here real quickly. And then we can move into uh, Satoshi's early days. But um, overall, essentially, we know uh, Japan basically and its people for their, like, you know, insane work ethic. Um, rich culture, you know. And, um, I mean, general, generally peacefulness, you know what I mean, kind of, basically, from what we see, especially within the media, but... Um, on on the back end of things, we also see if you take if you look hard enough, it's a it's a it's a country of uh, of conformity and a, a country where basically everybody wants to try to fit in, and with that 
you know, being the thing, any differences, if you are different in any way, shape, or form, and I mean, this could be physical differences, mental differences, if you are different and you are not fitting status quo, um, it's, it's bringing shame upon, like, families, basically. Yeah, um, basically. And so, I mentioned mentally and physically. This includes, like, the disabled. You know what I mean? So, like, being disabled is basically a, a, uh, is a, is a shame that is brought upon the family. I mean, most families don't, you know, basically, uh, own, you know, uh, the family, the disabled persons in their family. They actually disown them in most cases, too, because of, you know, how much shame they can bring. Even knowing of them. Having the knowledge of them. Um... Is this like mental health is like a huge detraction, like as the like as, as a nation's whole, you know what I mean? And it's like they lose a a lot of people, like per a hundred thousand. It was somewhere around like twelve people per year, or twelve people per a hundred thousand per year. It's like a crazy number, and all because these people, you know, are constantly under the pressure of fitting in, under extremely, extremely stringent work, you know, loads and things of that nature. So it causes uh, a disruption of, you know, just self-care in, in, in all these terms. Um, there's no real support for, like, anything when it comes to, like, disabilities and mental illness around, you know, uh, or lack of support thereof. For, you know, government. And, I mean, hopefully within these next few years, they, they are growing into these types of systems. But especially back when uh, Satoshi was up and running, uh, yeah, it, it really wasn't necessarily a big thing. Um, you know, most individuals who, who suffer from any type of disability or um, mental illness, they are shunned. Like, in, if, they're out, if they're not in a facility of some sort, they are shunned in society. Like, this is a thing. Victims of, like, mass discrimination and like stigma it's terrible really um and it's been a societal issue for like years we're talking like from like world war ii times like 1945 you know um and i read a i read an interesting fact during the uh, the research i did and it was it said something around the lines of uh 25,000 disabled peoples are um disabled and like sterilized so they won't Procreate. They don't have kids, and it's like sixteen thousand of them, or something like that. It was like um, forcibly done. Like this was involuntarily sterilization, right? And it's it was called the Japanese Purification Law. It's nastiness. So so getting that under understanding that context, it's it's some real nastiness when it comes to uh, disabled peoples. You know what I mean? Hopefully, like I said, it's getting better. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, moving on to Satoshi's early days, you know. Um, he was born in uh, Tokyo, or close to Tokyo, in like 1990, uh, in a, like a little town uh, called Saganihara. Um, and he lived a pretty, you know, normal, uh, middle class life, I would say. His, his father was a school teacher, right? And his mother was a cartoonist, okay? So she did like things for animes and... You know, she did things for the newspaper and things of that nature. Like, she was a full-blown animator. Um, so, you know, he, he was a, a, at least basically affluent, if you will. Um, he was a normal kid. 
known to just entertain, known to laugh, known to have fun. And this is like throughout his like his like junior high into high school years. He was like a normal kid, right? You get into trouble every now and again, but um, he was charismatic. He was uh, known to be handsome, you know, normal. Uh, but up until getting into junior high and into high school, he started like hanging around uh, like some seedy folks, you know, not great looking fellas. And uh, he started shoplifting and vandalizing stuff, and that you know that type of stuff immediately brings shame to family, right? So like now you got to deal with that pressure at home. But then in addition to that, there it was starting to show a bit of a pattern, right? So in 2007, he has this incident where a disabled person, a disabled person, was like walking in front of him at school. He like knocked him over. Uh, and he got like it caused like some genuine physical harm to this, to that person. And uh, when asked about it, uh, he was basically said that it was in his way. It was in his way, right? Um, and same around having that incident, he's having more arguments with like his family and stuff. He's doing more things with his friends and smoking weed and hanging out. He gets this like extremely large back tattoo, right? Like extremely large back to that tattoo fills up his whole back, and his parents don't like it, and that like drives a even bigger rift between them. So they leave uh, Sagamihara and then move away. They just move away. They move out to Tokyo and they leave him in there that little apartment. I would like to get my tattoo, right? I mean, I feel like he might have, but they it, they represent. Like Yakuza and things of that nature. You know what I mean? So it's like just bad in all in all. So, after leaving over the back t- tattoo in like 2012, uh, Satoshi graduates from university. So he's out of high school around this time. He's went to university to be a, a, a teacher like his father. He was, you know, did pretty decent in high school. Did still got into some trouble. All right, not uh, high school, excuse me, university. But still got into some trouble and things. After graduating, he didn't even use the teaching degree he got. Like it wasn't even like a thing for him. He went in the total opposite direction and uh, ended up selling weed out of the apartment he was in and uh, becoming a tattoo artist. And he was not good at both. He went on record saying I was terrible at both of those things. So there are people out there with that smoke terrible weed and have a terrible tattoo for this fucking guy somewhere, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know he's. Recognizes he's terrible at it, and his life goes through like this bit of stagnation. And in the midst of this stagnation, he basically is like, "I'm gonna go get certified in something. I need like a, a I need a boost. I need some gainful employment." Uh, and he goes back to school, uh, ventures in, and gets certified for work at psychiatric care. Right. So this is where basically the, the his downturn kind of uh, reflects itself. So he gets this part-time job at this place called the Suki Lily Garden, right? And this is a place, this is a facility that holds disabled people, and it helps them, right? Um, and when he gets the, the, the job, it's on record him saying disabled people are cute. Now, that, I feel like that's a huge change from the it was in my way, but still seems very gross and disingenuous almost, you know what I mean? Was that like an interview? Yeah, it was during his interview. Yeah. We'll call you... Uh, yeah, definitely, right? So, he gets his part-time job there. 
Um, and shortly after, like, about a year of being there, he gets promoted to, like, full-time. In the midst of that, though, he changes his demeanor completely. Like, he's, like, a completely different person. Uh, he's, like, on record on hitting multiple residents of the facility and multiple staff, like, beating them, right? Because they're doving what he's saying. And uh, even approaching upper, like, management people. Um, the last time he ends up stepping to an upper management person about uh, around 2016, uh, after that altercation, he resigns from that place. He just he can't take it anymore. He resigns from the place, right? So, two weeks after his resignation, all right, this guy uh, moves from uh, Sakamihara, right, goes to Tokyo, and he starts writing out a handwritten letter uh, for uh, as the Speaker of the House representative out there. And uh, he ends up getting this letter, like, in this guy's hand. It's craziness to me that that, like, made it so far. But uh, basically his letter was a, a request, right? And, uh, like, uh, almost demanding a, a, a service. And the service basically being the legalization of euthanizing any lies of people with multiple disabilities. I had to read that off for you just so you can know how, like, intense that is, right? So... It, I got a quote after this. It says, uh, euthanizing these lives will be for the betterment of Japan, for the betterment of the world. This would boost the economy and it prevent World War Three. This motherfucker's a psycho, right? <laughs> he's a, he's an absolute psycho. Um, so, in the letter, he, like, literally outlines an entire plan of how he will, like, use his own hands to do this, do, do this work how this cleanse will actually work um he even says in the letter like after the deed is done i will turn myself into the proper authority so like he's got planned a to z basically for him it's crazy so uh the speaker like reads this letter it's like yo this this manifesto was crazy and he actually sends this out uh to the proper authorities right and within four days they catch this motherfucker they arrest him and they involuntarily put him into the same psychiatric ward he worked at at Suzuki Lily, right? And he only stays there for two weeks of rehab. Like, he only stays there for two weeks of rehab. Gets out, and this is around uh, July 25th, is like when his devious deeds come to him, right? So, he travels to Tokyo. Right, where he gets his car, he uh, gathers a, a duffel bag, gets a bunch of knives, drives out to a uh, hardware store, store and gets a hammer and a bunch of rope for binding. He uh, he goes into uh, the Shinjuku district. He dyes his hair blonde. He meets a, a, a little woman friend lady right, uh, for dinner, and he totally tells her his entire plan, like manifesto style. And and she doesn't take him seriously. She doesn't take him seriously at all. It's crazy. It's fucking insane. Um, like, how do you not? How do you hear something like that and be like, "Oh no, this is okay. I'm gonna finish my steak." Right. I'm telling you, I'm just gonna know. Right. This was insanity. So, in the morning of July 26th, early, early, early morning. So around, uh, it was. I think the time was 1:40 a.m. Something around that time. Um. 
a camera at the Suki Lily facility picks up a, a black Honda, like approaching the like the back gate basically, and uh, it stops, it parks, and Satoshi gets out. He's on camera getting caught, getting out. He goes to the back of the truck. He grabs the bag and all the tools, and he starts walking into it off frame. And then another camera catches him walking over to a, a back window. Uh, where he breaks the window with the hammer and then crawls inside the building, right? The rest of that stuff is obscured. But um, once inside, he finds an orderly. He ends up tying them up. He steals their key, right? And having had worked there prior for a, a bit of time, like a number of years, right? About three. He understood, like, security routes. He understood, like, some of the orderly routes and things of that nature. So having that plan in mind, he avoided security by heading over to the west wing while they were in the east. And getting over there, he ends up walking into all these disabled people's rooms and stabbing them one by one in their sleep. Moving from wing to wing while avoiding the security patrol. So he does his duty and then uh, casually is caught on camera walking out back to the car. Right? And it's insane to me that he that he did that. It's just so disgusting. Um, he walks back to the car, gets in the car, gets on social media, on Twitter in particular, right? And he makes a tweet and takes a selfie of himself smiling and he says, uh, it's captioned, uh, may, may there be peace, world peace, uh, beautiful Japan. Yeah, this, this, this motherfucker is sick, man. Um, so 10 minutes after that, Right, the police get there, but by this time, they, by the time they arrive, he's fled, he's gone, right? And they see the carnage, and literally uh, two hours later, Satoshi uh, turned himself in. Here, he actually learns about the amount of damage he does, right? I actually have this written down for you. So, um, 19 patients were killed, 26 were injured, and like of that. The 26, it was about uh, 13 of those who were uh, uh, severely injured. Yeah. Um. So, like I said, he he about two hours later, he literally does turn himself into the police, right? Like he goes into their actually turns himself in, that and all of his tools. So seven months after this incident, right? He's found mentally like competent, mentally stable enough to like stand trial. And uh, his team's pleading non-guilty, uh, reasoned essentially of, of insanity, right? But Satoshi in particular didn't show like any remorse for any of the stabbings, like whatsoever. Uh, but he did try to make a, an apology attempt to the, to the families who were in the courtroom, right? So in the middle of the courtroom, this motherfucker bites off his fingertips at, in like, right, in repentance. <clears throat> But that shit, like, falls on deaf ears. Nobody gives a fuck, right? You can go fuck yourself. Get the fuck out of here. And, and, <laughs> and he tends to still remain firm in believing, like, disabled people don't deserve to live. It's nuts. He's charged with 19 counts of murder, 24 counts of attempted murder, two illegal confinements with injury, three illegal confinements, one illegal injury, and one violating the Swords and Firearms Control Act law. Like, Wow. Right? They threw all of the books at this motherfucker. And he is uh, sentenced around uh, March 16th, 2020 to the death penalty. But it turns out there isn't really a death penalty out there. Like, there is, but there isn't. 
So he's basically he's just sitting on death row, uh, awaiting his own execution at this point. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I don't think he had the choice of you know, <laughs> death by torture. I don't think this guy's that hardcore. Maybe. You know, they should you know death by disabled and they just, a bunch of people beaten with his crutches. And shit. <laughs> but that's a. Uh, that's the knucklehead uh, Satoshi Uematsu, huh? <laughs> that was a good one. Oh my yeah. goodness. You know what I didn't mention? And I don't know hmm. if you know yours. So I like to mention the signs. So with Ed Kemper, he was a dirty Sagittarius. A dirty Sagittarius. <laughs> uh, I didn't write down any of those. The signs uh, did not like to be in too, Zodiac. Yeah, yeah you're in a, I, I did not, so. <laughs> uh, my next one is the infamous uh, Richard Ramirez. Ooh, the Night Stalker yo. boy. Night Stalker boy. He is also known as the Valley Intruder and the Walk-In Killer. Okay, okay. Any Pisces out there, y'all can have him because he is a Pisces. Go ahead and take your man. <laughs> uh, he did kill 13 people. Um, he has five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. And this is all with between June of 84 and August of 85. This one was busy. Yeah. He was busy out there, 43 man. 43 crimes in total, but because of what he says later on, which I'll mention, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of unsolved murders that he is attached to. Yeah. Um, A little background of his you know, upbringing. He is or was the youngest of five kids. Okay. His father was an alcoholic, so he was very abusive when he drank not only to his mother, but to him and his siblings. Mm. Um, so around 10 years old, he started smoking them trees and drinking that <laughs> Mad Dog 2020. He was like, listen, I need to feel done. I can't do this no more. Jesus. Um, around 12 years old, this is when he kind of come becomes heavily influenced by his older cousin, Miguel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miguel was a decorated Green Beret. Um, he was in the Vietnam War. Oh, so a murderer. He was in the Vietnam War. But out there in Vietnam, he was he did rape a lot of women. And he was, in his own right, a serial killer himself. Bingo. Um, he does gloat to Richard Ramirez about all the people he killed. He has Polaroids showing Richard. At 12 years old, you mm-hmm. know, all the people he killed. This is not what the U.S. Army is asking. This is his own special thing he does on the side when he's out there. With what a psycho. Yeah. yeah. Um, he also teaches Richard Ramirez a young how to do, like, he shows him, like, killing techniques and how to hide in the dark and be unseen. Um, and around this time, he's, you know, He's influenced by his cousin Miguel, but, you know, he still has to do with his dad and the abuse. So a lot of times what Richard would do, he would actually uh, sleep in the cemeteries. So before he was even a teenager. It's really sad and really disturbing at the same time. He's becoming numb by smoking weed and drinking, but also probably, you know, you think about, like, you get away by reading books. He's probably getting away his mind by Miguel telling him all these stories. Yeah, yeah. At night he goes and sleeps in the cemetery. Um, 
Weird place to find comfort. Right, exactly. I don't know how long after, but only a couple years later, um, his cousin Miguel gets into a dis- domestic dispute with his wife, and he shoots his wife and kills her right in front of a young Richard. Oh, man. Yeah, so Richard Ramirez does see his cousin's wife get murdered by him, and he later tells like reporters that it wasn't traumatic, it was rather like more of like fascinating to him. Mm. So he would be like a 13, probably year old, 14 year old. He sees his first murder done in front of him, and mm-hmm. he doesn't think it's traumatic. He thinks it's fascinating. Um, his cousin does go to his uh, his cousin is um, you know arrested, but he is actually found not guilty by reason of insanity. So you know he the I feel like the legal system kind of failed right there. And, yeah, uh, for sure. He just sent to a mental mental institution, um, and this uh-huh. is in Texas because at this time Richard is in Texas. Um, later, when Richard gets a little bit older, he does move in with his older sister and her husband, and he kind of learns that her husband is a peeping tom, and he likes to go out and watch women, like probably climbs trees, like he's. Um, Marty McFly's yeah, dad or whatever <laughs> and he actually takes Richard out and actually when Miguel gets out of the mental institution because he gets out those three they're like the three musketeers and they go you know spying on women while they're getting undressed and things like that Yeah. Um, around this time too he's actually so about around 14 he's actually starting to do LSD Oh, the good stuff. Right. Okay, here we Richard go. Trees wasn't enough. The Mad Dog 2020 wasn't enough. He started doing LSD at just four yeah. years. So. <laughs> uh, and he gets into Satanism and the uh, cult lifestyle. Okay. I don't know. If he's, you know. I'm assuming his older cousin, Miguel, probably is teaching him this stuff. Uh, I mean, work hard, play hard, right? right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he also started watching it. I don't know where you would get this from, especially in, like, I don't know, the 70s and stuff like this, but... Like, he starts watching, like, violent BDSM and, like, bondage things. Like, oh, so he was up smut. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I don't know. Maybe they have some bootleg, like, VHSs or it was actually homemade from, who knows, Trusty yeah. McGill yeah. or his. It was a big thing in New York. Oh, That was man. a huge thing in New York. They used to ship them out and stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah, so they, I don't know where he gets them, but that's around 14. He starts watching stuff like that. Mm. Um, when he's of age to start working, his first job is at like a Holiday Inn in Texas. Okay. And one of the first crimes he commits is actually molesting two kids in an elevator. Oh, that's fucking disgusting. Yeah, you would think piece of shit. that, okay, now we can put him on record, now we can kind of monitor him, but no, it's yeah. never reported. So, I see that the kids didn't say anything or the parents didn't, but he's not reported. So he uh, continues to kind of like uh, do things at the hotel, like rob guests at night when they're they're asleep. Because you okay. know about it, Miguel taught him how to creep in at night. His uh, sister's husband is a peeping tom, so he yeah. uses both of those things to help him get what he wants. <clears throat> um, what really ends his job at the Holiday Inn is that he's actually caught trying to rape um, a woman in her hotel room. Thankfully, he's caught. Yeah, he's caught by her husband. Her husband beats the shit out of him. Oh, yeah, put the paws on that motherfucker. Hell yeah. Once he murders her marriage, 
he 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 not forget his ass whooped. So <laughs> I, mean, his, I would whooped his ass. Right. And you know this one, you know, he goes to jail but the case is dropped because the couple doesn't come back to Texas. I think they were vacationing. They don't mm-hmm. come back to, to Texas to testify. So that case mm-hmm. gets dropped. So it's like he's barely in the system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um by the age of twenty two, so this is around nineteen eighty two, he does move to California permanently. Um, and then about two years into being into California, that's when the killings start. Okay. Killings, burglary, the abduction of children in their homes. Um, and that's one thing about Richard Ramirez that's different from other serial killers like the Hillside Strangler, Ted Bundy, uh, Ed Kemper, those type of people. He didn't have a calling card. Ah, okay. So, cops were really floored about, is this one person? Is this multiple people? Because he's, on one hand, shooting some people in their home. Others, he's, like, stabbing to the point where their neck is almost off. Their head is almost off their neck. Yeah. He's also abducting kids from parks, their homes at night. And he would rape them, but he would actually then go ahead and drop them off at, like, a gas station so they can get picked up. Uh-huh. So he had uh-huh. some kind of sense of not killing the kids, but it was just so many different things he was doing. It wasn't... I guess that could be appreciated, but it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't like it's not like it bounces out anything. Right. He was really bad, but the cops really couldn't figure him out. They were like, this is not just one person. That's what they thought. Mm-hmm. But what probably really got them thinking, okay, this is one person was that they would usually find a size 10 footprint at almost every crime scene. Interesting. So they started kind of putting two to two, two and two together. Um, he was killing for some years and he was up and down like Southern, Southern California. Okay. Um, and my grandmother has told me a story about her encounter with Richard Ramirez. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, so my grandmother has almost gotten caught by Richard What? Grandmama? <laughs> Grandmama? Yes, he was in Morovia. And I'll tell you about when he had Wow, okay. My grandmother was coming back from a club in Morovia, yeah. California. Shouts out to Morovia. Um, and she was walking past the alley. And she looked, uh-huh. in, she looked in the alley. Like she was okay. walking past. And she sees this man just flying, like he's running fast towards her, like that black guy off of Get Out. Ah, like uh, okay. Yeah, she yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell, it was like, he had a black trench coat, and it was just like blade, just like the wind was <laughs> In the wind. He was coming after her. So who knows if he kind of was already, you know, he had seen oh, her walking. Oh, man. That's terrifying. And a small town, so... You can walk 15 minutes and be out of Moravian. Oh, like from one end to the other. Right. So he could have been kind of scoping her out. Again, he has those techniques of just not being seen in the dark. Yeah. And she is a track star. My grandmother um, is a track star. There's no one who has beat her record in middle school to this day. She Uh kicked off them heels she had on. Sister girl had on. And she flew down the street. (laughs) So he was running after her. She was going to get my dust. And she went banging on her mom's door. Her stepdad answered. Dude, that's insane. When she turned around, he was like, dang. Like, <laughs> almost, <laughs> got almost got it. Almost got it. Yeah, but if it was for her speed, 
taking off them heels. Wow, that's that's a that's crazy. Yeah, it's close to home. She was, it's yeah. interesting. And she said she didn't know it was him until the next day. She saw a picture of him, or really? like a sketch artist probably mm. did something, or it was probably around the time where they didn't know it was him. Right. Um, right. She knows the next day it was the night stalker. They've been talking about it for a little bit, and you know it's been on the news. And uh, that's absolutely terrifying. Like, I got chased by the night stalker, so she knew it was him. She saw him clear as day. Um, and then the next day confirmed it for her. So shout out to my grandma for still being here and not being one of Richard Ramirez's victims. Yeah, yeah dude. Like you got to be wow. Wow. So oh my god, I imagine she her adrenaline was on like another level. You know, black people. If one person start running, out, we're all running. Or if you, oh yeah, if facts. We all running. Flying at towards me at night and there's nobody. I'm around. taking off. Take it you off. coming for me. I, say, I don't care yeah. what you I don't know. You're coming for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she said she took off some heels and was gone. I respect that. Good and on you. And you know, this could have been around <laughs> maybe May of 85 because this yeah. was the time where Richard Ramirez actually stole a car and drove uh-huh. to Morovia. And he actually broke into the house of Mayville and Florence Lane. Now, these oh, were man. like some older women in Morovia, California, where my grandma grandma was at. Okay. Um, Morris was disabled. She was about 81 years old and Mayville was 83. So they were sisters. Um, he broke into their house while they were asleep. He took a hammer from the kitchen and he went into the room and hit them, you know, bludgeoned them with the hammer. Yeah. Not to the point of killing them. He wanted them to be still, you know, cognizant and aware, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Okay. Because he went ahead and Florence, he did a rape Florence. So he didn't care your age. He did. Um, oh. He did raise Florence. That's terrible. And he did uh, take Maybell's lipstick and he did draw a pentagram on her thigh and also in on the walls of each of the bedrooms. All hell Satan. Okay. And um, they were found two days later. They were uh, still alive, but comatose. Yeah. Um, Maybell did die later from her injury. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, so I'm thinking this was around the time that he tried to get my grandma. He didn't get her, so he went after. He could have before or after, who knows. And, mm-hmm. um, again, I thought it was so nasty, and I can understand why the police couldn't tell, because he's raping young people, he's raping children, and elderly, disabled. Yeah. Um. So There's no real... Um, mo like modus operandi or anything to it all. Yeah, he was just yeah. kind of. just I'm just sick, and I just want to fuck everybody's lives up. So for right. the next three months, he's on a killing spree, raping, attacking, burglarizing people. Um, he was a student of Ted Bundy and the Hillside Strangler, so mm-hmm. he kind of learned from them, and not only them, his cousin. Um, and he also watched a lot of media, a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. So. He was just like at Kemper, right? Let me keep up and, and make sure I'm like 10 steps ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, the San Francisco police, they did identify Richard Ramirez, so they sent that information to the LA police, and they knew Richard Ramirez was coming back from Arizona from visiting his brother. So they were going to catch him at the bus station mm-hmm. in LA. But Richard Ramirez is a little bit smarter than that, and he noticed, like, okay, the homeless people sitting on the ground at this bus station, they look a little better than the homeless people I'm usually seeing. <laughs> you know? Look well said. Right. Like, Richard Ramirez has a lot of He, he they, Some people say he had an odor about him, so he kind of know what a homeless person looks like. 
and he fled the bus station, the Greyhound, and he ran into this Hispanic uh, corner store, and um, there was elderly women looking at the newspaper. On the newspaper, on the front of it, was his picture. They look at it, then they look at him, and his eyes get big, and he runs out. There's this big mob that chase him down the streets, and he's trying to carjack women, carjack people just to get away. He tries to carjack this one woman, but her husband sees it, and he takes a metal pole from the fence and beats the hell out of Richard Ramirez. So this is mob. They restrain him. They're beating his ass, you know, like like the neighborhood should do. Yeah, neighborhood watch out. <laughs> and um, you know, he even says um, to police later, like, "I was so glad to hear the sirens." Yeah, because they were getting ass. <laughs> <laughs> when you're happy to hear police, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, he does get convicted in September of 89. He is uh, sentenced to death. Mm. Um, when leaving the courtroom and talking to reporters, he oh he's also sentenced uh, to death by the gas chamber. Um, okay. He does tell reporters, big deal, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Um, Right, real cocky, and even during the trial, he is considered a sex symbol. This man, like women, sending new pictures to him, and they think it's a game. He ruined so many people's lives, and you guys are looking at him like a—he's a sex symbol. Yeah, that's gross. And even when he's leaving to go to prison, he sees one of the lead detectives on some San Francisco cases of people getting burglarized, and Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, tells the detective, "Hey." Are you still looking for the killers for these two women? And he's like, I did it. And he's laughing about it. So you can tell that maybe um, the there's other murders out there that are connected to Richard. Ramirez. So he's got other bodies under his belt. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, and, you know, kind of like the couple of episodes we talked about before with the shadow. He said he's fully aware of the shadow that lives within. He's let it out. He says, I was in alliance with the evil that is inherited in human nature. I am the walking dead. So, mm. he just really embraced that shadow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, he was awaiting execution, um, but while waiting, awaiting execution, he did develop B-cell lymphoma, and he did die in 2013. So, <laughs> thank God for that. And I think he went on record saying that because he was a ser- servant of Satan that he didn't think he could die in those kind of ways. Yeah. So, okay, that just proves you wrong. See you in hell. See you in hell. See you in hell. Anybody wants to know more about Richard Ramirez, that dirty little Pisces, um, you can watch the docuseries on Netflix called The Night Stalker. Um, there are a lot of YouTube interviews, and also they kind of do a great depiction of him on American Horror Story 1984, which you can find on Netflix. And oh yeah, I do remember that. Absolutely. I didn't know there was such a uh, close at home experience like that for oh, you. That's man. interesting. I know it was always something that grandma told us. So yeah. yeah. All right. All right. I'm gonna be uh, as quick as possible I can with this next one here. Um. This one, we're going to Korea. His, his name is uh, Essie Sagawa. Uh, this is in uh, Kobe in Korea, okay? And this is around 1949. He's born a um, few years after World War II. And uh, this is another individual who's born into an affluent family. 
is extremely affluent family, all right? Uh, at this point, um, after World War II, you would think that, you know, the countries around that time are in some decimated states, you know, in, in, in repair at this point in time, and uh, he was living fine. His father was a CEO of a very large water distribution company. I think it was called a Korean Water. Like, it's like the water out there, basically. Um, and being born back then into affluency was great, but then also there was some negatives because uh, Essie was born prematurely. Right? So he was uh, a bit frail. He was short. Uh, he had uh, enteritis, or almost like a gastroenteritis. So a intestinal tract issue. Um, so he stayed, uh, he was fairly introverted and stayed to himself mostly, especially in his childhood. Didn't really find too much comfort in people, but found a lot of comfort in like uh, literature and things of that nature, you know? Uh, not really into sports and everything, but the literature thing held him down into from being a child up into the young, uh, being a teen and through up into being a young adult, right? Um... He ended up going to two different universities after going to high school, and this was to get his master's in literature. This is how much, like, he, I guess, just loved that medium. Uh, but while in college, uh, you know, he started to garner a very unhealthy uh, liking to, like, foreign women, uh, white, uh, tall, blonde, blue-eyed women in general, right? This is, like, that was his thing. Uh, so... His downturn basically started in college. Uh, he was infatuated with this young one w white woman he saw, uh, and un immediately noticing in his mind, he was saying to himself, "I need to take a piece of her flesh," and that kind of like was something that stuck with him. Um, one night, super late at night, he follows this woman to her home, waits outside till she starts to go to bed. He breaks in, only wakes her up, and she actually defends herself, and he gets arrested. Okay, right, but. Uh, Big Daddy Dollars hops out with the fat wallet and settles outside of court and leaves no blemish on uh, Essie's like record or name or anything, right? Yeah, his dad comes and saves his ass. Um, so, in April 26, uh, around 1977, Essie uh, moves to Paris, right? And this is like a strictly like, academic move. He wants to go uh, get his PhD in literature now. And uh, here he meets uh, Renee Hartfeld, right? And uh, this this woman, uh, foreign, beautiful, he is infatuated. And at this point, they become great friends, which is, I guess, nice. Uh, they go on outings together. Uh, they go to eat. They hang out. They're in study groups constantly, or they're just studying together at each other's apartments. Um, but that relationship was like strictly like platonic, right? There was nothing else in between them. Um, as he started to realize, like, but like throughout his stay in Paris and spending time with Renee in particular, like he would constantly have these like urges, right? Like like nagging at him, and he would always bring uh to try to alleviate these urges. He would always end up bring sex workers back to his apartment, and he would want to like take a piece of their flesh he would want to hurt them in one way shape or form but he would never actually do it right yeah he was being a pussy about it thankfully i guess because i mean a lot of those women's got away um but it was something that he couldn't necessarily satiate all right 
Um, now, around June 11th, 1981, is where the act actually occurs. All right, he uh, is in, he calls Renee and invites her to dinner, and she already had the idea of actually hanging out with him anyway because she wanted to work on a poem that they were working on for a certain class. So she agrees. Uh, she meets up. They have conversation at, in the apartment. They're talking, and he decides that he's going to go in the kitchen and begin to cook while she sits at the desk in the living room working on her poem. Um, and throughout conversation, until time passes, and uh, he actually walks into out of the kitchen and into his back bedroom, grabs a rifle because he starts to feel that urge coming on, and now that he has Renee home, he casually walks into the living room, uh, takes aim at the back of her head, and as she is writing, he fires. And kills her instantly. Now, the thing being is that he also rec- remembers and, and goes on record saying that he fainted immediately after pulling the trigger. But upon waking up, his uh, urges kicked in. And he proceeds to sexually assault her body, assault her body in general. And after that, he dismembers her. And uh, takes a bunch of her flesh, wraps that up, and puts that inside of the refrigerator. He eats some of her and puts the rest of it in a bunch of giant travel bags. Don't you got right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, apparently it helped part of his diet. I don't know. This motherfucker's sick. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> takes these bags, right? And he hails a taxi nearby. And he didn't really count on it being like still daylight or anything. But he takes these bags, puts them in the back of the, of the taxi, and then uh, tells the cab basically to go to the lake that's nearby. It's a park in a lake nearby his apartment, and he's thinking he could dispose of the body in the lake, right? So, gets to the park, and lo and behold, it's still daytime, and there's more people there. And there's still people outside, like, enjoying and being, you know, full of recreation and fun, and not murder. And so he... Takes these bags and begins just to like walk around the park, essentially, just to like bide his time, essentially, just and find a good enough spot. In the midst of doing all this, he's a dummy and he starts to get distracted by other beautiful people, right? Other beautiful women he's seeing, and so he decides to set these bags near a bench and he starts to walk away from them to get a a, a better glance at these people he's looking at, these women in particular. There's another patron. In the park, uh, sees these bags, and they are leaking a substance, and he asks, Hey, are these your bags? And Issei uh, replies, No. The man opens the bags. He reveals Renee's corpse. Uh, there's, uh, on records, a bunch of women fainting behind him. The smell was uh, was known to be full of pennies. Um, And Issei, calmly enough, just walks out of the park. Just walks out the park and leaves. Um, and it's caught four days later. And, like, when he got caught, right, uh, he says, I only killed her just to eat her flesh. So they put him in prison. And uh, he stays in there for for about two years, right, before his trial. And then he goes to trial. All right? And again, daddy money wallet bucks, right, <laughs> comes in. And gets him so many lawyers uh, and highly sought-after lawyers right for his case. And the trial 
ends up not really happening. Um, and he ends up getting confined to a, a psychiatric facility, right? And under the guise of being insane. Now, this is in France. Okay? And knowing about this, the like uh, French populace have, have an outrage. They don't want to you know, pay for it. Their tax dollars, they, want, they really just don't want to pay for that type of person uh, to be in a facility in their land, right? Um, so... Since he was legally set, set, set unfit to stand trial, all charges at that point are dropped, all documentation is sealed, uh, and they deport him back to Japan, like leaving Japanese authorities with him without any help to prosecute, right? And Issei uh, walks away a free man. He walks away a completely free man, right? He finds new life. Like literally writing books and essays about his crime, uh, he he created a manga about his crime. Uh, he's been on, on TV talking about his thoughts and feelings about the crime, right? Uh, he's essentially became like a, a blue check mark, like a, a public figure in this way. Uh, said that he um still lives, um he's still alive rather, and uh, he's been on record saying like his urges has never left him. Like, period. Never elect him, and he is sure he'll act on it again, right? In addition to this, uh, as he has gotten older, this is the craziest part to me. This is disgusting. He says that he's looking for a woman to kill him and eat him in, in the same manner so the cycle can continue. How much you paying? Because. How much are you paying? It's fucking great. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's our Korean airline trip with, uh, Mr. Issei Sagawa as captain, and, uh, that was an awful ride. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do they have any, any of your people have any, like, docuseries, or mostly just, like, you found them? I just did research and read up a bunch of different articles and things of that nature. This isn't one of those, uh, documentary things that I've seen. I mean, uh, give a look up on YouTube. Uh, for sure, names and stuff will be in the description of this podcast, so you can definitely you know look them up and give them a read. They're interesting characters. A bunch of other ones that we did actually have on our list too. So I'm 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 suspecting a second episode of this at one point in time later in the future. Cause I I found a man um who murdered fifty dogs before he got to people. <laughs> and uh, he's also in Korea. So yeah, I'm gonna go take another trip across the pond when we get there. Every time I because I've read about Issei, and then when you talk about Renee, I'm like, just walk away, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> that song just stuck in my head now. <laughs> All right, you have any, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts? Um, some discipline a day, an ass whooping a day, because it's still a killer way. Yeah. I mean, talk to your, 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 your kids. Yeah. Because <laughs> that should start at home. Uh, yeah, red flags. Um, um, not doing no. anything. Happy Halloween, of course. There's that. Happy Halloween, absolutely. Vote. 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 Yeah, early voting and things. For sure, for sure. And, uh, yeah, that's all I got. All right. Yeah, like I said, not doing anything is the same as doing something. Oh, for sure. I don't expect any listeners are <laughs> seeing red flags with the, the future serial killers of America, but you never know. <laughs> um... We drop our podcast, remember, every Friday. Um, you can catch us on all major streaming platforms. 
Later, guys. Yeah.